Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Hi, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for joining me on this Thursday. We're going to walk around the marketplace of ideas this hour, and we've got a lot of places we're going to stop and visit. But first, it is a leap year day. So happy birthday to everyone who only has a birthday every four years. (laughs) I can't figure that stuff out. It's above my pay grade. But it is the last day of February. So a couple of things I want to quickly bring to your attention. That means today's the very last day for my truth tool, Connecting the Dots. Last day today at midnight. It falls into the annals of history. But right now you can still get it by calling 877-JANET-58, 877-JANET-58, or by going online and giving right on the website at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Scroll down that front page until you get to cover the cover of the book called Connecting the Dots, and you can make your gift right through the website. The subtitle is What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense, and a lot of us on our Pilgrim's Progress have had this sense where it's like, God, where are you? I seem to be walking in circles. Have I stepped into your good and perfect will? I don't know if you're with me. I'm not sure I can follow you. And so this wonderful book really reminds us that even in those times when we think he's not there, he is. And even when we think we're walking in circles, we're not. So this is an encouragement to every saint who has picked up their backpack of sin, laid it at the foot of the cross, and now 
is moving forward to the Celestial City, if I can borrow from our friend John Bunyan. So 877-JANET-58, 877-JANET-58, a gift of any amount, and you're going to get a copy of Connecting the Dots, which goes away at midnight tonight, or in the market with JanetPartial.org. You can give online. By the way, Thursdays are also big because it is the day my partial partners get our newsletter. Only the partial partners get it. Partial partners, someone who gives every month at a level of their own choosing. You always get the truth tool, and in addition to that, you'll get the weekly newsletter as well. So check it out. In the market with JanetPartial.org or 877-JANET58. We're going to start once again by going to Israel. Meet up with my friend Chris Mitchell, who is the Middle East Bureau Chief stationed in Jerusalem and gives us an update on the continuing war in Israel. The Syrian government accused Israel of major attacks in and around Damascus on Wednesday. One building reportedly served as the headquarters of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in the southern part of the city. Israel also struck a number of Hezbollah installations in southern Lebanon, as Iran has reportedly given the green light to its proxy to escalate the fighting in the north. CNN reports the Biden administration is concerned Israel is preparing for war with Hezbollah in late spring or early summer if diplomatic efforts fail. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant says Israel is operating in all areas of Lebanon, including far north of the border. He says Israel is committed to bringing tens of thousands of residents evacuated after October 7th back to their homes, even if it means a wider war. We are giving a chance for a process of settlement. And on the other hand, we are preparing all the possibilities in order to safely return the residents to their homes, even in an operation that is not a diplomatic operation. With the Muslim holiday of Ramadan less than two weeks away, the U.S. State Department is urging Israel to respect religious freedom and allow access to the Temple Mount. It's not just the right thing to do. It's not just a matter of granting people religious freedom that they deserve and that, to which they have a right. But it's also a matter that directly is important to Israel's security. It is not in Israel's security interest to inflame tensions in the West Bank or in the broader region. Israel's foreign ministry tells CBN News Israel respects religious freedom. Let's make it very clear. All security challenges and all decision-making is uh, in line with uh, one of the cornerstones of Israeli society, uh, which is freedom of religion uh, and allowing uh, people from all religions to, uh, to pray. Hamas leader Ismail Haniya is calling on Muslims in Israel to flock to the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the first day of Ramadan. Historically, Israel has imposed age limits on worshippers because younger Muslims have used the Islamic holy month to riot on the Temple Mount. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, family members of hostages held by Hamas began a four-day march from the Gaza border to Jerusalem as they hope and pray for a deal. We send them strength and ask them to hold a little longer. Omer, just a little longer. A deal is possible. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, Jerusalem. I want to dig into several things that Chris noted, and I hope you understand that these should be translated into prayer requests. So we are about to enter into Ramadan. Now, paradoxically, this is a time where there should be fasting. The fast gets broken at night by the Muslims. It's a great time of fellowship. But historically, in the tensions between Israel and the surrounding nations, it is also a time where aggressors, agitators, terrorists— go and flame the the, uh, fires of animosity against Israel. So earlier this week, it was Defense Israel Yoav Gallant who warned that Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas 
are trying to just do that. They want to use Ramadan as a way to inflame the region so as to achieve another October 7th disaster against Israel. In fact, some people are calling it a potential October 7th. Now, this is very serious when you realize what happened. And again, proportionately, what happened on the 7th to Israel, a nation about the size of New New Jersey, this was the same as our 9-11. It was that big. So again, the arrogance of whether it's Prince William or president of any country saying to the sovereign nation of Israel, I want to cease fire, is like having Canada tell us how we can respond or should respond after 9-11. The hubris of that, it just it's immeasurable. But according to Gallant, the hope for those fomenting want to provoke Palestinians in Judea and Samaria. The press loves to call it the West Bank. That's because it's west of the Jordan River, but it is, check your Bible in your map, Judea and Samaria, and Hezbollah and Arabs and Muslims across the region to attack and turn their rage on Israel using the Temple Mount and tensions in Judea and Samaria as an excuse. So the defense minister, by the way, according to the Jerusalem Post, has been a leading voice for smashing Hamas and earlier in the war tried to persuade the war cabinet to launch a preemptive strike on Hezbollah. Now, let me break these down for you again. Remember, Israel has two non-negotiables when it comes to ending this. Number one, every single hostage is to be returned. That has not happened yet. You heard that in part of Chris Mitchell's story. Number two, Hamas is rooted out in its entirety. You know, if you ever have those onions in your garden in the spring, they'll pop up all over my garden. If I just pull the top, the onion stays under the surface. And guess what? I get more of those little onion weeds that pop up all over my garden. They don't want any of the things left under the surface. No Hamas outreaches under the surface. So their attitude is, we're going to look for the complete eradication of Hamas. And that's going to be difficult, by the way, because then there's Hezbollah, which is in the north in Lebanon, completely and totally back-trained and funded by Iran. So Ramadan is coming, and this is when you and I need to appeal to the king of all creation and ask that peace comes, he will only come through the Prince of Peace, but that there be lasting peace in the region. Back after this. God is always at work in your life, but most of the time you can't see it or understand it. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Discover how to know what God is doing when life doesn't make sense. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. You know, I've often said, what would it be like if we removed a Christian witness from the public square? We think that the role of Christianity has played throughout history in establishing hospitals and orphanages and, well, William Wilberforce moving to the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. The list goes on and on and on. And, you know, God calls his people to serve everywhere. And sometimes it's on the mission field, and sometimes that mission field has a capital dome. And the gentleman I'm about to introduce to you now had no conflict whatsoever knowing the distinction between serving God and serving country. It wasn't an either or, it's a both end. So this gentleman, Jody Heiss, was a congressman for eight years representing Georgia's 10th congressional district. He was born in Atlanta, raised in Tucker, Georgia, got a bachelor's from Asbury College, then a master's of divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary then a doctorate of ministry from Luther Rice Seminary, and then served as a pastor in Texas and Georgia for almost 25 years. Knows a little something about communication because he hosted his own radio show called The Jody High Show uh, for 11 years. It went on over hundreds of stations. And now I have the privilege of introducing him with a brand new moniker. He now serves as the senior vice president at the Family Research Council. 
And we have a very troubling report about hostility against churches that we want to share with you. But Congressman, first, congratulations on this position. I'm thrilled that you're working at FRC. You're going to bring so much to the table. But I want to ask you a kind of transcendent question, because we're talking to people right now from Guam to the Cayman Islands, a whole lot of people in between, the vast majority of them professing Christians. And for some of them, there's still that struggle that somehow God's people shouldn't be involved in the public square, particularly in politics. With your background as a pastor for 25 years, how did you move from that to the job of a representative? Well, Janet, well, first of all, let me just say it's an honor to be with you. I'm just so grateful and uh, for the clear biblical voice that you provide uh, for believers all around the world in a literally a world that's upside down. But mm-hmm. listen, I, I was I was a pastor, like you said, 25 uh, plus years and never dreamed that I would be involved personally, politically. But we had a couple of battles that came our way as a pastor, one with the ACLU, the other with the IRS. Mm-hmm. And both of those battles involved uh, people within our church and uh, they took on a national attention. And literally, I got pushed out of the pulpit and into a national arena that I had never anticipated that I would be. And one thing led to another. As you mentioned, out of that, the radio program came forth where we started dealing with biblical values uh, on uh, and, and what's taking place and how Christians need to take a stand. And and then one th- one thing led to another. My re- congressional representative resigned, and uh, people started asking us if we would pray about running. And so that's kind of a long, uh, a short story of how it all came about. But uh, listen, God, God instituted the family. He instituted the church, and God instituted government. Yes. And Christians frequently tend to place emphasis on the first two and walk away from the other. But God has called us to engage all three of these areas. Amen. Amen. And you did not feel that you were serving God any less as a congressman than when you were a pastor, correct? Oh, absolutely not. Everything we do is all about kingdom work. And I I feel like God just uh, changed the pulpit, if you will. And I had an incredible, I I look back and just see the opportunities God gave me to speak into the lives of congressmen and national and even international leaders. And listen, it's all about kingdom work and standing up for the Lord, regardless of where he places us. Yeah. Amen. Oh, you you have to come back. I would love an hours long conversation because there's so many things that you can discuss that really kind of undo the knots in a lot of believers thinking about this intersection between the believer and the culture. Seeking the welfare of the city means just that. We recognize our temporal citizenship, but we are to seek the welfare until the Lord calls us home. And in this country, thanks be to God, we have a representative form of government where we can do just that. So you talked about moving and being called in and being pulled in. I must ask you, this will require an expansive answer at a later time, but just quickly, the bludgeoning tool du jour right now happens to be anybody who believes that their biblical values are good for this country and want to vote their values that somehow now the cudgel being used to silence us into submission is that somebody just like you is a Christian nationalist, because how dare you bring your Christian values into the marketplace? How do you respond? Oh, yeah, listen, it is it is absolutely stunning. It is frightening to see what's happening. And the most frightening part of it is, for the most part, how many pastors and churches are are quiet, how many of them uh, are turning their heads away and somehow pretending that all this is just a bad dream and it's going to go away. But this whole push towards Christian nationalism, Janet, is really an attempt 
to silence believers, to marginalize believers, to put us in a corner, to say that we do not belong in in the, the political arena. For that matter, we don't belong in positions of CEO or whatever in, in corporations or whatever. We need to just sit over in the corner and be quiet. And this the, the Christian uh, nationalism is turning into a, a, a movement that basically says if you embrace b- biblical values, then you are, by just definition of what you believe, a Christian nationalist, and you are a threat to democracy. And therefore, we as a government, as a society, have a right to go after you and either criminalize you or silence you or whatever it may be. That is what this movement is moving towards. And it's very frightening that that we in America are watching this unfold before us. But now is the time for people to wake up and engage it. Amen. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, the paradox here is it's about worldview. In the final analysis, this is about worldview. If you and I happen to believe in the biblical definition of marriage, then I'm going to vote for a politician who upholds that standard. I'm going to support the public policy that protects that definition as God gave it to us. And that doesn't make me a Christian nationalist any more than it makes someone from the left who has a worldview world that's absence of any moral grid, absolutely does not believe that there's a transcendent truth, and they believe that marriage can be anything we want it to be. They're going to vote for people who uphold that standard and who don't see the personhood in the preborn. They're going to vote for someone like that. So this is, in the end, while it's the, the uh, throwing the spaghetti on the wall like a cafeteria food fight, it's language designed to do exactly what you said, Congressman, to silence us so that we will not become participants. But as Augustine reminded us, we are citizens of heaven, but we are temporal citizens of earth. And in that capacity, we are to seek the welfare of the city. And that means voting for men and women who uphold standards of righteousness. When we come back, and this is what I knew would happen, Congressman, we need a much longer time together. I want to take a look at this report that FRC put out, this chillingly uh, important report about hostility against churches and why there's been a market uptick recently. We'll continue right after this. He was a pastor for over 25 years. He hosted a radio program heard on hundreds of stations. He represented the good folks of Georgia's 10th Congressional District for eight years. And now Congressman Jody Heiss is the senior vice president at the Family Research Council. They put out a very important report, 183 pages long. I've got a link to it on my website. I thank FRC so much for making their documents readily available. So for six years, from 2018 to 2023, FRC identified 915 acts of hostility against churches, not overseas, not the persecuted church here in the U.S., And if you boil that down, just between January and November of 2023, last year, 436 acts of hostility took place in the U.S., more than double the number that FRC saw in 2022. So, Congressman, the question is why and what kind of incidents are we seeing? Well, we're seeing all kinds of incidents, Janet. I mean, everything from vandalism to arson uh, multiple gun-related uh, incidents, bomb threats, I mean, pretty much you name it, uh, where churches are, are uh, being vandalized, Bibles ripped apart. I mean, mm. is, you, you name it, it's all going on. And the frightening thing is not only is this hostility on the rise, as you mentioned, but it, it is accelerating. I mean, we have seen an 800% increase in hostility against churches, uh, alone, just churches in the last six years. 
and so this is a, a, a very alarming trend as to what is causing it. You know, that, that's a, a difficult question because it is, I guess you can point the finger all over the place. But mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the day, I think you have to include things like government policies. You have mm-hmm. to include the fact that this administration has come in virtually since day one and has started to weaponize this government against political enemies, which that includes people of faith. Uh, we are watching the Department of Justice, for example, the IRS, the FBI, all of them beginning to target churches uh, and people of faith, uh, pregnancy resource centers. I mean, you name it, all of this is unfolding before us. And there's a great disrespect that comes with it towards Christians, towards Christianity, towards people of faith. Uh, we are marginalized. We are uh, told that we are dangerous to democracy. And I will say this you know, at a time where this administration is condoning religious intimidation, uh, encouraging it from every way, they're investigating, they're, they're holding, um, you know, all of us um, accountable for every little thing. While they are doing that, they call us a threat to democracy. It's just mm-hmm. it's remarkable what is unfolding, yeah. and certainly this cannot go under the radar of not only believers and church leaders and spiritual leaders and so forth, but our our government. This has to be recognized as a gross violation of our constitutional rights, our inalienable rights, and we must have justice. As as we all know, the Bible is clear that God abhors uh, injustice. And so uh, all of this is taking place, and we must step up and and engage this thing head-to-head. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm quite sure that this is going to be distributed on the Hill so that at least our representatives can begin to understand that this is a problem that cannot be swept under the carpet, that we do need to take a look at this. Causal factors, figure it out if you want to, have some hearings if you want to. But there has to be a kind of reaction on the Hill when we see this mounting animus against a particular group of people. By the way, one of the things that you put in your report was a chart just looking at the incidents from January to November of last year, a marked uptick in June. Well, you look at that and you think, well, when the Dobbs decision was leaked before the court handed it down, we saw all kinds of responses. So that's a direct representative of animus that came out of the culture. But your point is so good, Congressman. When we see the weaponization of our government, when DOJ says to the FBI, we're going to plant you in traditional Catholic churches where the mass is said in Latin, because that's where we think we might find domestic terrorists. You give people who live on the fringes a kind of license to become vigilantes to do things in their own eyes that they think are right. And that's the power of language. So there's got to be a legislative response. But now at the church level, because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, do you think that we are in a day and an age now where it's paramount that churches have protection? I mean, we just saw what happened at Joel Olstein's church. And we look at that and another church, there was one in Virginia that was usurped because it was an off-duty officer who attended that church. It would have been another church massacre. So how is how important, and I appeal to you now as a former pastor, how important is it for churches to have protection? Well, it, it just is, it's something that must be taken into very serious consideration. But we cannot yield in speaking biblical truth. We, we mu- it must be spoken in love, of course, uh, and gracefully uh, and so forth, but we cannot back down from speaking uh, biblical truth. But with that comes hostility against the world, and increasingly that is becoming a reality in the United States. Therefore, 
we must begin to take appropriate precautions. We want to be able to worship freely. We want to be able to worship without fear. Uh, and we, we want to be able to take that message into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, churches need to uh, be uh, taking uh precautionary steps, obviously, with this, but they cannot back down. Uh, we, we've got to be bold. We've got to be courageous, but we have to be wise, and that includes taking appropriate steps. I agree completely. One of the reasons why I'm glad this is going to be distributed on the Hill is that you and I both know full well that the Southern Poverty Law Center, who for years did legitimately good work, but now has become a hateful group and think that they exist solely for the purpose of identifying groups they hate and call them hate groups, of which FRC is one. Well, if they're now people who uh, cannot abide hateful acts, then when you see the 183-page report that FRC put out, I'd like to see the Southern Poverty Law Center join work with the Family Research Council and say, we're going to do whatever we can together to stop this marked animosity against the churches. Congressman, that went by far too quickly. Please come back again soon. There's so many things I'd love to discuss with you. And again, I am so thrilled in your new position as Senior Vice President at the Family Research Council. Back after this, friends. Let me give a big shout out to our partial partners. Thank you, friends. Partial partners are becoming the backbone of this ministry. Their generous monthly gifts allow us to provide relevant, compelling programming every day. When you become a partial partner, you'll receive private emails directly from me, a weekly audio message only you will hear, and special behind-the-scenes updates as well. Become a partial partner today by calling 877-JANET58 or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So I love talking to people who exemplify what we discuss on a regular basis here, going through life with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And there's just something about having a biblical worldview that gives you a 2020 perspective on the world that's going around you. And not only that, but so often God will call his people into the public square. So we just had the privilege of talking with former Congressman Jody Heiss, who's been a pastor, a politician, and now senior VP at the Family Research Council. I want you to meet Emma Waters. Emma is someone who graduated valedictorian of Lee University, double major, poli-sci, and Biblical and Theological Studies. See, the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. She currently is a research associate for the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation, which means every once in a while she can wave at my daughter Sarah as they walk past each other in the hall. But Emma joins us today because, oh my goodness gracious, I cannot believe the reaction since Alabama handed down their Supreme Court decision dealing with frozen embryos that were willfully destroyed when mom and dad didn't have any knowledge, never gave their approval. But the way this has been spun, I've had to take Dramamine over and over and over again because I don't know how persons living outside the Beltway understand really and truly what that decision was all about. So, Emma, I'm glad you're here to help clean things up. And let me just start with the idea that this wasn't about saying we outlaw uh, lock, stock, and barrel, anything with in vitro fertilization. It was about a couple whose frozen embryos that had yet to be implanted were, without their permission or approval, destroyed. And that's what raised the ascendant question before the high court in that state about the personhood of the preborn. And what they did was they said, listen, the reason these parents were upset is because those were not potential children. Those were children with potential. And I think it was a great decision. Now, tell me where my thinking is wrong in that and what can we add to the clarity of what they really ruled? That is a fantastic summary. We know where Sarah gets all of her legal expertise from now. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, you are spot on. So an unauthorized patient in the adjoining hospital walks into a fertility clinic and instead of the embryo storage section being locked up and secure um, like it's supposed to be, it was actually left unlocked. So what happened with that is then this patient um, selected a tray of embryos, dropped them to the floor. Um, and you're right. So the parents sued under the wrongful death of a minor act, um, claiming that they deserved a legal recourse for the wrongful death of their embryonic children. And initially, the trial court who heard this actually ruled against them, saying that their embryos were property, not persons. Mm. And so mm. I think this is probably one of the best parts of the Alabama Supreme Court ruling is that they said that for the purpose of the wrongful death of a minor act lawsuit, that the embryonic children in question are considered persons of the law um, and that persons, whether they're in the embryonic stage or in the womb or fully born, um, should receive those protections regardless of what size they are or where they're placed. Yeah, exactly. By the way, Emma, I love the fact that you're a mom and I love hearing your baby in the background because it just underscores the importance of what we're talking about. It's perfect. Thank you for that. So let You're me go welcome. back. I I got chills when, when the idea that someone would say this was property, this takes me back to 1860. This is exactly the issue at the core of the slavery issue where we fail to acknowledge the personhood of the slave, where we said it was chattel that could be bought and sold at the whim and whimsy of the person who had, quote, possession. So if the Supreme Court in Alabama hadn't ruled this way, it seems to me that what it would have done is open the floodgates today to say we can dispose of this, quote, property when we want to without acknowledging not only the connection between parent and child, but absolutely denigrating underfoot the personhood of the preborn. But it wasn't a way of saying we forbid IVF by any stretch of the imagination. So the fear mongers have been running amok throughout the culture saying we're going to have to introduce legislation that protects IVF. The president comes out saying it was a ridiculous decision by the Alabama Supreme Court. That's that, that that to me is the chicken little worldview. That's not what the decision said, or am I wrong on my interpretation? No, that's absolutely right. So the Alabama decision did not prohibit IVF, um, and it actually didn't even prohibit the destruction of embryos. Um, it was only specifically ruling about wrongful death claims where there's negligence or carelessness on the part of the fertility clinic. And so the, the ruling really left the door open and said, all right, now state legislature, it's up to you to decide the contours of this. But for the purpose of this case, we are ruling that they're children. And so it's a very narrowly tailored ruling for the particular issue. Um, and then it is an open question of how Alabama will continue to rule when it comes to the status of the embryo and how they govern IVF in the state. But you're absolutely right that the idea that this somehow prohibits or bans IVF or even bans embryo destruction is completely misguided. So on that note, what are we seeing at the federal level? Because I saw all kinds of interesting audio this week that was coming from Capitol Hill about somehow they had to sort of repair the breach now that uh, IVF was not going to be available to people. And again, it's a grotesque misrepresentation of the decision. But it, it's, it's, it does raise a philosophical question, which is, what do you do with babies that have been made through this process? They are, again, there isn't a person within the sound of our voice. You don't have to have an advanced degree in medicine to understand this or be a biochemist. Every person within the sound of Emma's and my voice who did not start out as an embryo, please raise your hand. I'll give you a minute. 
Okay, that, that's sort of the issue in a nutshell. So again, in God's economy, we all start out as an embryo. That's the way it goes. It doesn't suddenly abracadabra turn into life. It's life from the moment of conception. So what happens when you've got this advanced technology, but you don't have some kind of moral parameters? So Emma, you've noted that in some countries overseas, they're starting to put some limits in place. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I think this is really the solution that we have to keep in mind here because you're absolutely right that we don't have a good answer to the over 1 million embryos that are frozen in the United States. I've not seen policy proposals, religious proposals, or even ethical considerations that really address the gravity of that situation. And so when it comes to what we do about it, it really is a question of what we can do going forward. And so in Germany and Italy, for example, we actually see fantastic laws in place where they not only limit the number of embryos that are transferred at a given time, but they actually limit the number of embryos that can be created at one time to about Mm. two to three embryos. And so in the United States, there's not actually standard law or guidelines on how many are created. And so our most conservative estimate is that it's about eight embryos, but we have accounts where as many as 20 embryos are created at one time. And based on just what we know of the industry, most parents going through IVF are not planning to have that many children by any means. So we're practicing IVF in such a way that we're creating this massive problem um, of what to do with the extra embryos. Um, and, And frankly, the fact that we have so many embryos perpetually frozen in storage, which can cost hundreds of dollars a month, tells me that even if the parents aren't explicitly pro-life, that there is some part of them that recognizes that those embryos are their children and that they're uncomfortable destroying them. Um, And they just frankly don't know what to do. So those sorts of policies can actually help curtail the problem going forward. So we're not just perpetuating this disaster. Wow. And is it true that in America alone that we've got 1 million plus frozen embryos? That's correct. Um, That's our conservative estimate from, I think, a a year or two ago. Um, But we don't even have good data and reporting. So we don't even have exact numbers on this um, because of how unregulated the industry has functioned so far. Wow. I mean, and again, we praise God for this technology because it has been the answer for so many parents. But then what do you do with the life that is in frozen animation? One thing that I love uh, is the work that the National Embryo Donation Center is doing in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is a group that has taken couples who want a child and will adopt an embryo. So mom has the ability and the privilege of carrying that baby under her heart but it's an adopted child per se in that it's an adopted embryo. They've been doing stellar work. It's my privilege to have spoken with them on air multiple times. And is this part of the solution, do you think, more adoption centers? I think that this is definitely a very good thing that we ought to encourage. Um, And particularly what I love about the organization that you're working with and a few others is that they actually treat the embryos like children in the adoption process and Mm -hmm. not property. And what I mean by that is that there is no standard law governing embryo adoption, which means in a normal adoption process with a child who's already been born, parents undergo extensive background checks and home visits and even interviews with friends and family to make sure that they're the best possible parents for this child. 
But in embryo adoption, it is not required that that happens, which means that ostensibly anyone could receive the embryo, which isn't to say that most parents have uh, wrong intentions going into this, but it is to say that when it comes to the creation and gestation of human life, we should apply the highest scrutiny, not the least amount. So organizations like you mentioned and a few others actually require the process to function like normal adoption. So they do background checks and they really work with the family to ensure that they're the right fit for the child in question, even if they haven't had the opportunity to meet the child yet. Yeah, excellent. I just love your approach to this so much. Emma, I want to thank you very, very much. Let me just tell you one mom to another mom. When I had four under the age of six, we would lovingly refer to this hour of the day as the arsenic hour. It is probably the worst (laughs) time of day to talk to a mom when it's like dinner time. I've missed you. I need you. I want you now. So I will cut our interview short so that you can be the mom that you've been called to be. But come back again soon because I love your heart and your inside. And again, with your double major, wow, you just, you look at the whole world so markedly different when you've got that poli size, so you know how to engage in the public square, but you also got that biblical studies in the background. So you've got that metric, that straight stick of truth that you can apply to the world around you. Emma Waters has been with us, research associate for the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage is known for the good work that they put out. So on my information page, I have a link that will give you more information about the Alabama case and the rules that they put in place that embryos are, in fact, children, acknowledging the personhood of the preborn. That's a novel idea. And one, by the way, by the way in 73, the high court avoided like the plague, wouldn't go near the idea of the personhood of the preborn. Now, it's hard to ignore, particularly because of all the advances we've had in science that just tell us with clarity it's a person and a person is a person no matter how small back after this what a joy talking to emma waters and wasn't she a pro she didn't skip a beat and there it was in that hour where baby says, I want you more than anything, mom. And she's doing an interview and didn't skip a beat. That's a pro if I've ever heard one. So I want to embellish a little bit on this. Um, IVF can be done in a way that doesn't lead to the creation of so-called excess embryos. Dr. David Stevens, a wonderful man who was the past president of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, said in an interview that the ethical way to perform IVF is either by fertilizing and implanting one embryo at a time or by the couple agreeing to implant every embryo that gets created. Now, that means multiples, right? However, given the cost of each IVF cycle and the almost 50% failure rate, most couples and clinics choose the more efficient process. And as a result, the number of excess embryos suspended in time and development tops, as we noted earlier, over a million. Now, some of these embryos will be implanted. A whole bunch of them will not be. And a small number will be donated, as I noted before, by the National Embryo Adoption Center, will be adopted to other couples for adoption, um, and especially redemptive alternative that offers embryos a chance at life. But the vast majority, as was the situation in Alabama, ended up being treated as property and not as children. So there was a hugely important aspect to this decision, and that was acknowledging the personhood of the pre-board. But, of course, this sends the pro-abortion crowd screaming into the night. How dare you? You can't do that. Because if it's a person, then you have to decide what shall be done with the person. My body, my choice kind of dissipates when you realize there's a person whose little voice is not heard in this robust debate taking place in our culture. 
And so that's something that we need to consider. And I will tell you what happened on Capitol Hill. And again, I'm not being political. I'm just calling the plays. It's like a game between the Bears and the Packers. I'm not rooting for either team, but I'm just telling you what happened. So the Democrats introduced a bill immediately after this Alabama decision. And it was claim was to support IVF, but in reality would have allowed human embryos to be destroyed. Um, and it, so it really was kind of a ruse of a bill. And then it took the Republicans to try to block the bill. So that's exactly what happened yesterday. A senator by the name of Cindy Hyde Smith from Mississippi blocked the passage of the bill. I won't go into the machinations of how all that happens. But this action, again, follows on the heels of the decision from the Alabama Supreme Court. So enter Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois. She urged the Senate to bypass procedural hurdles. Remember, it's just like, well, I'll give you a sports analysis. Okay, in football, there are rules, right? You've got all kinds of rules. You grab the face mask. There's so many yards for a penalty, uh, unnecessary roughness, so many yards for a penalty. And so you cannot circumnavigate the rules. You win by who gets the most points, but the rules keep order on the playing field. Same thing applies to the U.S. Senate, to Congress in general. So what this particular woman wanted to do from Illinois was to bypass some of the procedural stuff and to move to approve the cold, the bill called the Access to Family Building Act. Don't you love the George Orwellian way in which we play with words in Washington? We do this all the time. And she wanted, instead of having a voice vote, she wanted unanimous consent on the floor yesterday afternoon. And so the Republicans stopped it because they said there are all kinds of problems. So um, it was interesting because Emma picked up on exactly what they were doing yesterday. And she noted that this was an attempt to try to say we, we have to negate the idea that frozen embryos are considered people under, in Alabama, the wrongful death of a minor act. And so this bill did, in fact, get stopped. And um, Duckworth announced that she will push for a unanimous consent vote. Uh, she did this yesterday. That allows bills to pass quickly without going through the normal review process. We call it grease tracks and common parlance uh, while the Senate is in session. And her goal is to manipulate the concerns of those in opposition with political optics into giving their support for a bill that would eventually harm, not help families struggling with infertility. And the bill would have significant repercussions. So let me give you some of the background on that. The act preempts any state's effort to limit such access, including common sense regulations. That means that, for example, Louisiana's Embryo Protection Act or Colorado's ban on anonymous gambite donation or Nebraska's law that renders surrogacy for pay legally unenforceable would all be on the chopping block. Moreover, the act's broad language would legalize abortion cloning, here we go, and designer babies with CRISPR. We've talked about this with Dr. David Prentice on multiple occasions from the Charlotte Lozier Institute. That's fancy gene editing technology. It's Frankensteinian. Both options, by the way, are not options that are embraced by the American public at large. So if that weren't bad enough, the act exempts itself. Now, this is where it got interesting on the floor debate yesterday in the Senate. It exempts itself from the Bipartisan Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, signed into law by none other than President Bill Clinton. So this is the first time an act tries to sidestep what is called RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And if passed, it would be detrimental to religious and pro-life organizations. It would force pro-life practitioners, again, to work against their sincerely held religious beliefs. And without these religious freedom protections in place, this act would require that churches or pro-life centers provide IVF health insurance coverage or access to reproductive technology in their facilities. 
And in, it, it's one thing to support IVF. And again, we thank God for this technology. It has been the answer for so many couples who have struggled with infertility. But we cannot ignore the fact that in the process of this procedure, that extra embryos are created. And if you and I hold to a biblical worldview, these are people, not property. And how do we tend for them? So uh, you cannot remove some of the ethical regulations that need to be put in place on this situation. And so uh, this move by the senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, um, is not the first time that she's tried to do this, by the way. She's tried to use unanimous consent multiple times to force through unpopular and legally problematic bills through the Senate. Last year, she tried the same move with the failed Right to Build Families Act. Um, and that idea was that any adult, biologically related or not, has a fundamental right to build a child through assisted reproductive technologies. And that was unpopular by both parties, by the way, Republicans and Democrats. So again, my hat goes off to Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi, Senator Hyde-Smith, in blocking this request for unanimous consent because that put that bill on hold for a while. So a lot of technical moves on this chess game known as politics, but the transcendence in all of this is the preborn is a person. If you go to the scriptures, by the way, and talking about God knew us, he formed us together in our mother's womb. You know, this idea of being an embryo isn't something new to the 21st century. It's how God has made human beings since the beginning of time. So if he foreknows us, if he knows every day of our life, if he knows the numbers of hairs on our head, if he knows us before we breathe our first outside of our mom, then how do we put that ethic in place with medical advanced technology? These are important questions, by the way. Again, it goes back to Blaise Pascal that science begins on the frontier of religion. And what he really meant back in the 1600s was you have to have moral parameters with some of these scientific advances. And that's important, by the way. They have to balance each other out. So I hope you've been challenged this hour. We've lengthened your prayer list. We've gotten you to think critically and biblically. And we've encouraged you to financially support in the market as well. Remember, today is the last day for connecting the dots. At midnight, it goes in the history basket. Thanks so much for joining us, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.